Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. I am your co-host Neve, and I'm joined today by your other co-host Connor. Hello, everybody. And uh, today we are obviously doing the question bucket. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of Mobile Suit Gundam, the 08th MS team, and then we're also going to be talking about the commercial album by the Residents as well as the 3DS game, Attack of the Friday Monsters. Um, and then there's a, a couple other questions we'll be answering throughout the course of it, but um, <laughs> we'll get to it when we get to it. So We've got a good question bucket lineup today. We do. Really, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, conceptual unity here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything in particular that you want to talk about with the OFMS team before we get into Ian's like first question here. No, I think I think we'll let uh, Ian kick things off for us. Okay, I think this is good too because yeah, I'll, I'll read it first and then I'll, I'll talk about why this is like I think good for us to talk about. Um, so Ian says, "I've been watching along with Great Gundam Project. So by the time I got to O Eight MS Team, I'd seen all four original UC shows: Char's Counterattack and the first two Gundam OVAs. Maybe that's why I feel so ambivalent towards this one." My primary feelings for the 08th MS team are boredom and the kind of emotional scoff that you associate with rolling your eyes. I pretty much agree with everything you two say in these episodes, good and bad and critical. And I think the only thing I would really comment is that I don't feel like there's anything interesting this seri- uh, that this series does well that isn't done better and with more complexity in prior UC shows. I'm also not generally crazy about all the Vietnam imagery uh, that it feels to me like the show is kind of tossing around without a lot of care. I don't know if you two have thoughts on that. So I wanted to kind of start with this, the Vietnam stuff, because we actually talked about this. It was just in the lost recording. And I think like, I just totally forgot to bring it up when we did it again. Um, (laughs) Did we? Yeah. The legendary lost recording. Yeah. Um. Well, so I think if, if you don't mind, like, uh, I just want to throw something out there that like following the lost recording, I thought about this a little bit. I've thought about it since. And I, it's not that I don't think there's anything to like the Vietnam connection, um, because I do think that's valid, but I also wonder how much. I also wonder how much the show is is truly engaging specifically with like Viet- the Vietnam War and Vietnam imagery and how much it is and how much we are like projecting that because like for me as an American like I see warfare in a certain type of setting i.e. like a jungle setting and it immediately like conveys Vietnam um yeah but I don't know if I don't know how much the show is actually conveying Vietnam and how much it's like exploring like warfare in a certain setting in a way that's not like directly trying to do like, you know, to reference Vietnam stuff. Yeah. It's, it's one of those where it is hard. I like the jungle 
translating to this is Gundam doing Vietnam, I think is a, a thing that happens a lot. And it's certainly something that at this point, like Japanese audiences probably would have seen American movies about the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one of these where I'm like, like, I, I think my biggest feeling on it that I said in the, the lost recording was just that it does so little with like actually exploring any sort of themes related to Vietnam. And so it does it in this way where any connection that you could do there kind of just feels like hollow or like set dressing. Like it, it feels very, there is an episode that we're going to get to when we do second gig that is like specifically a pastiche of a lot of American war films and in particular like Vietnam war films. And that one is also kind of weird in a way, but like both of them feel like they're almost just referencing like here's an aesthetic from American cinema and not actually trying to engage in any way with like the actual themes of the Vietnam war, because perhaps in some ways, like how much does Japan really care about it in the way that America does? Like for America, it's all about like, what does it mean to be this like military hegemony to go into this country and to like basically throw all of our might at it and still lose a war. And I don't know if Japan as a country that it like, for a lot of post-World War II history has been occupied by America is just interested in that question in the same way. And so, like, I understand why it's not fully exploring that. It would be interesting if the series did, but it it's so hard because it's not actually exploring it in any meaningful way to even, like you're saying, feel confident that that is even what they, as, like, creators are trying to do. Yeah, like for me, it is. If you really want to try to draw this out, and and I'm saying this is like you know I think this could be in a way kind of a stretch, but you could you could do something about like you know the conclusion of 08th and what Shiro and Ina do and the way that they. Their like ideological response to the trauma of like this type of war that leads them to like you know pursue this kind of like libertarian homesteading fantasy. You could try to talk about like the U.S. Uh, the post-Vietnam U.S. in that way, which. I think would be fun and interesting, but I don't know. I don't know if the show is actually doing that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing here is I don't want to fully speak for Japanese audiences, but just knowing some about like Japanese history and Japan's history with war, jungle warfare for people in Japan might also evoke the invasions of Southeast Asia during World War II. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's one of those things too, where I'm like, is people saying that this is Gundam's Vietnam like show? Like you're saying, is it actually true? Because it does feel like at a very like American centric perspective to 
look at jungle war and immediately say that's our jungle war. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think your point is actually, I think that's a much more interesting path. And I think it's, it's probably more like to the point to look at it from like a world war two standpoint. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if you have other specific thoughts here. The other thing I would say regarding the point about like, Oh, eighth not really doing anything unique like vis-a-vis the original UC stuff. I think my main, the main thing I would say to that is like, 08th, and we talked about this ad nauseum, like in actual episodes, so I won't go through it all again. Yeah. Um, for for context, have you seen 0080 War in the Pocket? Yes, I have. Okay. Um, I want to like foreground that, that you've seen it as you, as you continue talking. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think War in the Pocket, that was actually one of the first Gundam things that I saw, aside from like Cartoon Network, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or Toonami when I was much younger. Um, Gundam Seed or whatever. Yeah. Um, War in the Pocket was an early one for me. So I I really appreciate what War in the Pocket does as well. Um, but I think what 08th does is it has it's advancing a very different like vision of war as such that it is defined more by like realism and I emphasize like the ism in that, but it's take on wars much more defined by realism. And I think it's trying to look at on a more like micro level. I think it's trying to look at how brutally like war instrumentalizes people and just the, like not only the grittiness to anticipate a later question that we'll talk about tonight but like the realism um the brutality of this combat like on on the smallest scale but then also just like how it permeates the lives of the people involved and i I think the other uc stuff does this to an extent but the difference is that the other uc stuff is it's on such a more epic scale like a literally Mm -hmm. epic scale and invested in this more, this kind of space opera epic type narrative where it's driven by other things. And it doesn't really dwell on like, you know, just the like quotidian day in day out of how like every aspect of people's lives is warped and defined by the contingencies of war in a way that 08th seems to be trying to do. Um, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say like an extremely naive thing here. Um, and this is something that like perhaps only our Icelandic listeners will fully get the reference I'm making. And I'm also saying this as someone who hasn't watched a lot of the older UC Gundam stuff. Um, I have seen War in the Pocket, but like I think it those are the two like. I've watched these OVAs, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like. In some ways, I think some of it is the contrast that exists if you are talking about the Icelandic sagas of, like, even Njála, which is a fairly, like, realistic and focused story, is still, like, a very long epic saga that goes through different generations and is like exploring the gradual dissolution of the Icelandic Commonwealth and like the, the failures of the uh, political system specifically being written by 
probably people who like after they submitted to Norway are going like, okay, how do we fuck up this badly? Let's like <laughs> write texts that are exploring how our, our experiment in like parliamentary democracy basically failed. Although, you know, lasted like at least as long as the United States has lasted. So, um, we are also experimenting, I guess, in the U.S. right now. Right, so. <laughs> um, but, you know, you compare that with Robinkel's saga, which is this, like, fairly short work and is often considered to be, like, so specifically realist that in a lot of Iceland it is, like, taken far more than some of the other sagas, although this happens with other sagas. But, like, Robinkel's saga is so accurate and detailed in its like just description of this is what like this area of land looked like or like this is how this ritual was performed and that realism again like the emphasis on ism enters it into it in a way where that is like part of how it's received and considered and and talked about even though Kravinkel saga still includes a scene where like Kravinkel says to his servant, like, you can ride any horse except for this one, which is, like, dedicated to Freyr. And then, of course, all the other horses, like, when the, the servant has to go, like, it's extremely important. I need to get a horse. All the other horses run away except for this one. And so then he has to ride it and then, like, seals his fate. And, like, that, like, all other horses run away except for this one horse, like, has an air of fate and of, like, some sort of supernatural occurrence or like narrativism that I would argue is still like not actually a true, like it's still pointing towards, I think all Icelandic sagas are constructed stories that are perhaps to varying degrees based on actual historical records, but that are still filling in to create a compelling narrative. And that um, the joy for me in sagas is like, how do they play with that space? How do they play with like history and, and narrative or story and like, what is true and what is like, what is factual and what is true and the difference between those two things. But like my, my feeling, my read is that like the thing that makes this, that makes the OAth MS team kind of unique and special is the fact that it is like this Robin Kell saga, that it is this thing that is like so concerned with what is the realities of war in a way that, other Gundam might still express how do people get instrumentalized, but they are not doing it in this like same realist approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And we even talked about how the change in directors may have even affected this to some degree, because again, there's like a a greater expressivity to the animation that happens in the second half of the series. So there's also a part of me that's like, would people also feel differently about this if it had been the same director? Like we don't know, but yeah, from like all Gundam that I've seen from what I know of Gundam, especially the fights in the first half feel so unique. And also like the, the fights in the second half whip ass, but yeah, I mean the fights in iron blooded orphans also whip ass and (laughs) the ones in the first half just like feel really, really unique and, and special. And a thing that I often do not see in a lot of anime, honestly. So um, yeah, yeah. The approach to combat is another unique element that Oath brings in, but that ties back into like this this larger thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Um. um the other and, one of like I just want to do some of like why did I choose this? Um, one is that it was like it was one of the only UC Gundam things that I'd seen, and. 
I have a certain fondness for it, even as I like see a lot of the issues in it as well. And I knew that you had not seen it, or it turns out that you had, but like basically remember none of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the same way that when I first watched this, I also realized I had seen it and basically remembered none of it. One um, <laughs> one drugged out binge on, yeah. on your friend's couch. But so part of it too was like, there's going to be an interesting tension in me not knowing a lot of UC Gundam, Connor knowing a lot of UC Gundam. But then in terms of this specific series, it switched where I know the series and Connor doesn't. And I thought that that like the tension between the perspectives, the you know so much about UC Gundam, but I'm still introducing like this OVA to you would be an interesting dynamic, especially for us. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for a long time, but this is still just our third series that we've covered. (laughs) And I also went in knowing that it was kind of a, divisive series like i know from great gundam project but also just conversations within like gundam fans that i know that there are a lot of people who don't like it but then there are a lot of people who do um including like i think the most interesting episode of the great gundam project if people like want to go and listen to one of those is the final episode where they talk about the last two episodes of oh ms team because m and jackson i think are so down on the series at that point and Austin's coming in as someone who I think has a lot of fondness for this series, has often recommended that people watch the series as one of their first Gundam series. And there's a really interesting thing that happens when you have that like tension between how are people feeling about this that I didn't know if that would happen with us, but it could be like, we could have got into this and you being like, I fucking hate this. <laughs> and me being like, cool, this is like one of the Gundams that I like because it's like one of the first ones I ever watched while... Again, just blazed out of my mind. Um, (laughs) You know, the Dr. Pepper effect. Um, Yeah, yeah, of course. But it was also one of those things of like, even then, if I was going to talk about Gundam, like my favorite Gundam, it's also not going to be 08th MS Team. If I'm going to talk about my favorite mecha anime, it's not going to be 08th MS Team. Um, If I'm going to talk about anime that I really, truly love, it's not going to be 08th MS Team. And so there's also something interesting to me in saying like, okay, I want to do something short for let's talk about Gundam without having to do all of first Gundam super early on in the run of this podcast. Like I want to have us get, you know, Ghost in the Shell and then two short series under our belt and then we can like go from there. And so this is one where I'm like, I like it, but I don't love it. And there's a lot that I can pick at in this series And I don't think we're going to talk about shows that we both hate. We might end up talking about shows where one of us are like, oh, yeah, I brought this. And the other one hasn't watched it. And then we watch it and we're like, I fucking hate this. But like, I I don't want to have us talk about something that we hate and tear it apart. We're not Um, just going to tee up something that we both know we hate. Yeah. Just for the purpose of like flogging it to death. But I also don't want to be like, let's only pick anime that's like our absolute favorite anime that we think is just like really great. And so this was one too where I was like, I think early on, yeah, (laughs) I mean, we will still talk about that, but I don't want to only do that. Right. Um, And this was, I thought it an interesting one to talk about where we're going to be more critical and we can like see what is it like when we are being more critical about a series while at the same time, like finding what's interesting, pulling that out. And I think of the like episodes that people have listened to so far, the OHMS team episodes are my favorite just because I think what becomes most interesting to me is 
you and me having different takes and then it is like trying to figure out what is the the space between those two takes and i think both of us are very good at not just like putting our foot down and being like this is the only valid take um and i think often in our conversations we arrive at something that's more interesting and nuanced that i i don't think either of us would have started at mm-hmm. um and that's uh, i think valuable and is also why i'm fine with this podcast like I'm done apologizing for the fact that we have like three to four hour episodes because I think the length and seeing how do people like arrive at a more nuanced understanding of a piece of media by talking with each other is like what is actually really interesting and valuable about this form of criticism. If I wanted to have really tight, concise, like here's my read on an anime, I would just be writing essays. I would not be recording a podcast with you, Connor. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, um, I, I thought it was a really interesting one for us to do that. And it, in some ways, I feel like War in the Pocket wouldn't have actually been as interesting for us to record or put out there as like a very early anime discussion that we do. And we're talking about doing it as like a Christmas special or something. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we may end up doing War in the Pocket. And I think that would be I think that would be really nice to do. But I, I agree with you. I ended up being really really happy that we chose that you chose a 08th MS team because you know pretty much every other series that we've done so far including Ava which you know we're doing right now we had both watched and kind of like had a sense of what our take on it was and 08th going in I was just like I have no idea what to expect and even when I started remembering parts of it I was still like didn't remember enough to, you know, remember what my conclusion was. Yeah, it was more um, of like the deja vu where you're like, oh, I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, specifically the deja vu of like, I vividly remember this, like the opening credits and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not a lot to go on there. Um, yeah. But the process of not only like working out, you know, kind of like quote unquote in real time, what we thought was going on, but then coming to a conclusion. And then, like you said, like having the like tension between our two conclusions, I think ended up being much more interesting because yeah, like just like, it is the case that like on one hand, there is something profoundly like optimistic about, okay. Like about the supposition that like, okay, yes, like, Shiro and Aina can go through this horrible trauma, and at the end, like, they can still live and be happy. And, like, that is a possibility. Like, you can survive this and live and have a good life. While at the same time, like, there is something tragic about the fact that they're the only good life that they can have or that they can imagine. And I do think that you could dispute which one of those it is, whether it's even possible or whether they just, you know, don't imagine it, but there's something tragic that the only life they can have is this kind of like libertarian retreat in like this, you know, provincial pastoralism where they like forego what appear to be opportunities for, you know, a greater sense of family or community. And, you know, like, since we've recorded it, I've thought about this many times and just been like, you know what? 
yeah, like that is the tension. Um, it is open-ended. Like there's something that's profoundly optimistic and there's something that is like deeply tragic. And I think that's actually more of the point um, yeah. that of the series. So sorry, that was yeah. a good Should we get ramble, into the real, but... the real questions here? Yes, let's do that. Okay. Uh, so these are all from Ian. Uh, number one, kissing the homies goodnight. I believe in you, Connor. Uh, they, <laughs> and they said everybody on the 08th MS team, Kiki, Ina, Guineas, Norris, and Yuri. So let's just let's just go down the line, okay. uh, starting with Shiro Amada. Yes. Yes. Shiro Amada is like, okay, everybody, you need to survive this. We're coming back home and we're kissing <laughs> each other goodnight. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He's, um, very, he's very concerned with everyone coming back home and getting kissed at the end of the yeah. year. <laughs> um, Karen Joshua. Yes. Yeah, I think I think this is one of those scenarios where like what she the it is contingent on what she considers homies. Like her circle mm-hmm. of homies I I think is fairly narrow. I think by the end of the series includes the OAth MS team, but like I think Karen would kiss Kiki goodnight, but is not going to kiss like anybody else like outside of the OAth MS team goodnight cuz Kiki's like honorary OAth MS team. For sure. Um Yeah, I I agree. Yeah. yeah. Kissing the homies insofar as they are the homies. Yes. Yeah. Terry Sanders. Definitely. I'd say yes. Yeah. It's one of those where like part of me is like, I think so. But also part of me is like, but it might just be like once to kiss Shiro. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I think I think Sanders... Sanders is haunted by the homies that he didn't kiss goodnight. Yeah. Yeah. Sanders. I think like the first time everyone's kissing the homies goodnight, Sanders doesn't. But I think he gets into it. Especially yeah. when it's like Shiro who's like, let's kiss the homies goodnight. Then he's like, okay, yeah. Like, I will I will follow you into this, Shiro. <laughs> <laughs> I will follow you into kissing the homies goodnight. Yeah. Um, Elador Massis. I think so. I think so. I think Elador... Yeah. Eldor doesn't realize that he wants to, but when the time comes, he finds himself doing it anyway. Yeah. I think, I think like if you were talking, it's not like the moment where it's all the homies. It's just the homies. We're just together. We're kissing each other. Good night. Elador's there. But I think like outside of it is like probably pl- playing it off as like, I'm too cool to kiss the homies. Good night. Yeah. That's the vibe I get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Like, yeah, I wasn't even whatever. I didn't even like really kiss kiss the homies. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't even a big deal. I only kissed Karen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right, exactly. I don't think Michelle kisses the homies goodnight. Really? Is I he just, too is he too busy writing letters to BB? Yeah, like I think like people are kissing the homies goodnight and he's over writing a letter to BB being like they keep kissing the homies goodnight. <laughs> yeah, my, my affection is like so sublimated to this Yeah. yeah. And then after BB breaks up with him, I think he's just like too heartbroken, right? He might come around to it, but we've seen episode 12. So that's like episode 12. Michelle is also part of why I'm like, I don't know if Michelle kisses the homies goodnight. Um, I think one day, one day. I think when he reunites with Shiro then, and then Shiro's like, I'm going to kiss the homies goodnight. Michelle finally does. Yeah. Like at the very end of episode 12. Um, Kiki kisses the homies goodnight for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, Ina, 
you know, that's, <sighs> Ina's a complex case. I want to say yes, but yeah, we talked I about think... Ina. Like, I think Ina is like deprived of homies to kiss goodnight by Guineas for like so much of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Ina, I know we talked about this in the episodes, but Ina is, is really a complex character in the sense of like, I think she's the best in the show. Um, and I wish they like did more with her even than they do. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we, well, we know what you wish they did with <laughs> Ina. So that's well, that's well on record. Um. <laughs> I just think we should get rid of Shiro, replace with Karen, and then Ina and Karen kiss. That's <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, Don't try and make it into like some weird pervert thing, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I I didn't I didn't use that terminology, but you you did. So, um, Ina, yeah, I think by the end she does. I think you know. I think at the beginning she thinks that she does, but she doesn't really, like, she's never been faced with a situation where she doesn't. Can. Or, or yeah, or where she can. But, you know, there's stuff about I know where it's like, she has a callousness to her or like an unthought through, like, um, where she she's doing harm, but she hasn't like thought through the fact that she's doing harm and she thinks she's just like fully altruistic and all of that is like totally related to you know genius and everything Um, yeah i think ina believes that she would kiss the homies goodnight but because of of genius is like put in a situation where she's never getting that chance and then i think once she first gets that chance it's like too overwhelming for her Mm -hmm. um in the way of like her trying to like like she will get past the the trauma that is like built up there but it does not is not there at first yeah but ultimately yes yeah uh guineas does not nope no hard let's just move on to norris i don't we don't need to talk (laughs) about it more (laughs) obvious um i think i think norris does we don't see a lot of norris but he seems caring yeah yeah i think you're right I think the the big thing is that like part of me feels like Norris is a little bit too old to at first understand. Like I think like would at first be like, what are you even talking about? But I think like would open up to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think um I think he's generally concerned for yeah. for the homies. Like I think, um, I think his lack of kissing the homies goodnight would come from like a pure place of ignorance about what kissing the homies goodnight even means. Like I don't think it would like enter his mind at first, but then if the homies were being kissed, he would then like partake. Um, yeah, yeah, he would. Yeah, he would partake without even like no hesitation. About it as yeah, 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 without even thinking about it as kissing the homies goodnight. He would just be like, yeah, yeah this is just I'm just doing this instinctively because I'm, um, you know. A nice old man. Yeah. Which the residents will write a song about later. And then I think Yuri kisses the homies goodnight, but in a a little bit too of aggressive a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does. Yuri yeah. kisses the homies goodnight for honor. Yeah. <laughs> for honor and glory. Um, because they're his comrades. And um, then, yeah. Yeah. 
Number two here, if everyone else on the OHMS team were to make an album like Elodor did, what genre would each member make and would they be any good? I'm including Kiki and Ina as honorary OHMS team members here. Okay. Um, My answer, especially Kiki, but I think also Ina. Every single one of them would make an indie folk album. Mm. And <laughs> probably none of them would be good except maybe Karen's. See, so the, here, here's what I'm thinking. I've been, I've been like trying to mull through this since Ian sent this in. Shiro is like fully like his album is all Enka songs. They're traditional Enka songs. He's like, it's like full like here. Let me sing these like really like heartfelt melodramatic Japanese ballads that are like just expressing like. Oh my my like strong desires and my like my feelings for humanity. Um that's my vibe with Shiro. Karen I think like has a band and does like it's like not even I think Karen is mostly releasing EPs because the band is like jumping around so much in terms of what they're doing. Like they definitely have the indie folk album, but I think there's also just like a weird experimental noise album and things like that. Like I just imagine my view of Karen is just someone who would like fully be like, I'm just doing weird, whatever (laughs) music I want to make right now. Yeah. Um, So my, my thought on Karen is that she's like originally in a punk band Mm-hmm. But then eventually, for she, sure. Like, but then eventually, she goes like solo, and her solo music is like indie folk. It's like punk influenced indie folk. But she eventually mm-hmm. transitions into like indie folk. I think I think she still experiments a little bit more. But I'm with you there. Yeah, I think. See for for Terry, I can see indie folk, but I think it's like, it's like very country. <laughs> like yeah. inflected yeah 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 it's like it's like yeah. wilco type yeah. shit yeah yeah um michelle i think michelle's album might be the worst i don't <laughs> like just in Brutal. terms of like quality um i think I think michelle's album is like very clear that he's trying to write poetry and just decided to set it to music yeah that's like very much the vibe. And I think it is like very just like you know, super like low key. Like it's just like a guitar and it's just like here's this poem I wrote and I'm just like noodling on the cu- guitar in the background. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Michelle listens to a lot of like early Bonnie Vare. <laughs> yeah. Um Kiki I think Kiki's just like straight up punk band. I could see that, actually. I think this is part of the, like, the little connection that you get between Kiki and Karen is Karen looking at Kiki and being like, oh, yeah, I was a punk rocker like you once. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. Um, Kiki's the main one that I would be like, okay, I'll revise my my indie folk projection. mm -hmm. And then I think Ina does some, like, really aggressive, noisy electronica. (laughs) yeah yeah i could see that Um, yeah i could also see ina doing like like ina definitely listens to the knife yeah yeah i could also see doing the knife but is like yeah is definitely inspired by the knife 
my see my take on Ina is that she does like she is also like indie folk, but she does like very like but like exceedingly well done, like very rarefied, like uh conceptual, like elaborate yeah. indie folk. Conceptual is definitely whatever Ina's doing, it is conceptual. For sure. And it's like it's like Michelle where she where it's like Oh, this is actually this is like supposed to be poetic, but for yeah. Ina it actually is, and she just like nails it. Yeah. Like Ina is doing. Ina's like Julia Holter. <laughs> That's how I see Ina. Yeah. I was gonna say like Yenny Hall for like people who listen to the Hot Singles episode. I think Ina might do some stuff like that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then number three, either of you know anything about the 08th MS team novel? I don't, but there's usually interesting stuff in the book versions of Gundam. Sorry if this one's a dead end. Haha. Ha. Uh, nope, haven't read it. This one is a dead end. It's all good there. I haven't um, read any Gundam books. I don't know if you've read literally any Gundam books, but I, I have not. But now, but I'm intrigued now. I might, uh, I might go down that rabbit hole. We'll see. One uh, one quick addition to the pre- previous question. Shiro Amada, like in the final episode, like dad mode Shiro Amada, listens to a lot of John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like, like there's something about Shiro that feels so like it would be this like Japanese like ballads and like that kind of form to me but I could also see it kind of going in like a dad rock direction <laughs> um, especially with like end like end of episode 12 um, alright okay so um, now I guess we can commence the uh, official like non-anime shit segment <laughs> of, the, of the question bucket and this time I Turns out, unless I uh, unless I'm reading these papers wrong, I think I'm actually going first. Yes, you are. Wow! Didn't okay. you go first last time when we talked about Final Fantasy VIII? <laughs> no, no, no way. Yeah, you you did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, you got me. Moving on. So yeah, the thing I'm bringing today is um, commercial album by The Residents. This album is released in 1980 by a group called The Residents. 
Um, I, in a second, I'll briefly talk about the residents and like the background to this album. But I think we can start off by reading a, a take by our dear friend Ian um, about this album. So Ian says, I don't know how to talk about music, but this is a cool ass album. I mostly listened to it as I was going to sleep for, for the night each night this week. So I didn't catch most of the lyrical content, but the vibe is powerful. Capital V on vibe. It made me feel like the very first time I smoked weed and then took a nap in my friend's bed in a college town I wasn't familiar with, only to be really surprised when I woke up 10 hours later and found that only 45 minutes had passed and everything was fuzzy in a good way. And actually the Adam West Batman movie is sick, it turns out. You know, um, this is such a perfect take (laughs) on this album that I don't really know if I can add anything to it. But uh, I will I will try. So as a preface, I wasn't planning on this, but I'll just get into like, I think I'll just go on a tangent. So I don't really know how to talk about music either. For me, I think... I'm just laughing because you wrote for a music blog at one time <laughs> or like music review thing. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I'll, so I'll get into that. But like, I have always been... I've always had a very hard time, I think, understanding music. Uh, For whatever reason, like, I just don't, it doesn't come quite as easily to me as it does to other people. And I I know this because I know people who are like, who really get music. And it is an amazing thing. Um, When someone is like, truly understands music, they're just like on a completely different level that I can't access, but I appreciate but because, like, I have a hard time accessing music, uh, I've always been the kind of person who, like, I have to listen to an album, like, many, many times before I'm able to, like, appreciate it uh, or feel like I have any, not even, like, before I even have a fundamental sense of, like, up and down and what's going on with the music, I need to listen to something many, many times. Um And then an additional many, many times to be able to like evaluate it and feel like I actually understand what the music is trying to go for. And this is another tangent that like maybe I I won't get into right now, but I think this experience has really defined my taste in music in a lot of ways um, because it's made me extremely empathetic to music that is like seemingly very, very ugly on the surface, uh, but actually in in a way that like repels people or repulses people. And so it's no coincidence that I've ended up liking a lot of music like that. But uh, anyway, that's all just to say, like, even, even now with albums that I'm really familiar with, I still sometimes struggle for, uh, you know, for the right words. So uh, I identify uh, strongly with your first statement here, and I'm sure you could probably surmise that this is the case with me by my attempts to talk about shaking the habitual last time, or two question buckets ago. But anyway, um, my only other immediate comment is uh, I don't know if it was the best choice to listen to commercial album before going to sleep every <laughs> every night. It's it seems to have worked out okay for you, but uh, yeah, that was a that was a bold choice. 
And uh, I agree the the vibe is amazing. I'll talk about that a little bit. And I'll also maybe touch on some of the like content that, you know, maybe uh, eluded your, your sleeping mind, thankfully. <laughs> um, so yeah, about the album um, and about the residents. So the residents are, they're sometimes referred to as like an art collective because they did engage in a lot of like multimedia, experimental multimedia stuff. But most people know them primarily as like a music group. Um, it put out a number of albums starting in like the early mid seventies going through the the two thousands. And when this album came out, this is arguably like the height of their commercial popularity, which so in a sense, it's, you know, the whole concept of this album is somewhat fitting. They started out doing um, some more straightforward, like satirical rock music that was like inflected with noise uh, elements and then eventually moved into like more conceptual stuff Um, like that album they did right before this is an album called Eskimo where they're basically like sending up like western like ethnographic like media about Inuit culture stuff like Nanook of the North and this kind of like racist takes on uh, Inuit culture. Yeah. Uh, and then we get this. Neve, have you ever seen Nanook of the North? Yeah, it's a it's a very bizarre film because of... Like, in some ways, it still remains one of the few documentary things we have of, like, Inuit culture at that time. And yet it is... The the form is so like heavily heavily influenced by the racism of the creators and their like attempt to get these people to stage doing things that they don't even do really anymore. Yeah. Um. And so it's just like, I mean, it's a it's like I'm not gonna say it's a good movie. It's like incredibly fraught. It it is an interesting thing to look at, especially if like me you are very fascinated in like what are the ethics of documentary itself as a form because it is such like in some ways an unethical documentary and yet also like still exists as a like a fragment of Inuit culture from the past that we have now and there's like so much around that in terms of the the tragedy of the ways that like a lot of these cultures in broad understanding are preserved through like colonialist racist attempts to document them um yeah anyway it's it's not to turn this into like a tangent on you know documentary film history but yeah nanook of the north very important film for documentary film history like there's a lot of interesting stuff about it but it is like a almost definitive example of especially as it pertains to like inuit culture almost like a definitive example of racist ethnographic stuff so anyway, I mean, this is the type, to summarize, this is the type of, like, group that is making a concept album to satirize, like, Nanook of the North at, at this point, to give you, like, a snapshot of where we are with the residents. And uh, this album, just some, ostensibly, the basic concept is that they're making an album of commercial jingles. 
Um, hence the name, like commercial album. Haha. Um, the next level of this concept is like what's underneath the concept is this satire of American pop music based on the proposition or observation, depending on your point of view, that like the compositional content of a normal American pop song at the time only differs from a commercial jingle in like length and repetition. So the residents have this album where they're making these ostensibly like quote unquote pop songs that are all jingle length. So one minute each, essentially like collapsing this distinction between, you know, this distinction between these two forms of like what we perceive as commercial jingle and then what we perceive as like, you know, a song or a proper song. Yeah. And this type of like deconstruction of pop music is familiar enough for them at this point. They have an album, a couple albums prior called Third Reich and Roll, where they like, it's basically about fascistic elements in American culture and how they're articulated through especially popular music, but also like, you know, TV at at the time um, and commercialism, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, here again, it's like, they're seemingly extending this same project by questioning the social function of popular music, pointing out its subservience to commercialism, um, and then challenging like the formal distinctions that are erected between, you know, various realms of popular music, i.e. like, you know, the distinction between a jingle and a, you know, proper pop song. Um, So all of that is like the purported concept of the album um, that I have to talk about only so far to like stage, (laughs) um, you know, the general idea. But I think like Ian, you may agree once you start listening to the actual album, you realize that this is like, it's so much more than that. It is a completely different like animal with a mind of its own. And it uh, either, I don't think it disregards this purported concept, but it goes so far beyond it. And what I like so much about this album and why I enjoy it, like has almost nothing to do with this, this concept, which I think even they like pause it as a starting point, but then don't really like necessarily like land on or stick to too much. And before um, I do want to hear your thoughts on this. (laughs) Um, Do you want me to, to quick interject and do a little, here's like some of my thoughts before I do that. I want to like, I want to stage this. I want to throw one more thing out for context, which is nowadays, like, I mean, many of you listeners may know, like, I'm not super online (laughs) Um, from prior conversations that we've had. One of the, like, main uh, forms of social media that I even, like, look at is sometimes when I'm listening to stuff on YouTube, um, like, full, (laughs) full album like this. Full, you know, full album like Residence commercial album. I will scroll down and read like the YouTube comments, and many times I've been really like delighted and amused and like surprised at how incisive 
like some YouTube comments can be uh, on these types of videos that really bring out, like, help me think about these albums in, in new ways. And for the benefit of our discussion, I selected a few from the Residence commercial album, full album uh, stream of, on YouTube that I think are really, uh, I, I think are also like really incisive. Um, so I'll just read these now. So we, we have one comment here. Um, this album sounds like how cigarettes smell. Perfect for a trip with glue. Keep it in your brain and behold. My God, this is some loathsome, loathsome excuse for creativity. <laughs> um, so I think between these these four comments, you know, you really get uh, the full the full sense of <laughs> um, the Residence commercial album here. So yeah, with those comments in mind, I throw to you. Okay, so for me to to first like introduce, what are my impressions of this? album i'm gonna go with what were literally my very first impressions because i listened to the a few other times after this and so i i listened through the entirety of the commercial album and then pulled out my phone and immediately messaged regs of hot singles fame online so i say i just listened to the album connor is bringing to the next question bucket and laughed at how much of a connor album it is uh reg says oh dear that sounds like an own me he's bringing the commercial album by the residents which is definitely interesting it's just very much a connor album as well regs ha 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 damn this album looks super interesting now (laughs) me it's one of those albums that's more interesting to me as like a historical document in the history of noise music or whatever rather than like an album i enjoy listening to regs yep totally makes sense me like, I want it to go way harder, but its thing is to be a pastiche of pop music, so it doesn't go hard. But them buying 41 minutes ad slots so that the full album was played on the radio every three days is great. I love this. What a cool art thing. Just sitting down and listening to the album itself? Eh. Regs. Lol, yeah. I like, I always hope conceptually interesting things are actually exciting and fun in the right ways. And I'm just glad when they are. They just aren't very often. Me. Yeah, agreed. Now I'm listening to the Suicide self-titled album, another very Connor album that I think has some similarities with the commercial album, but that I enjoy listening to a lot more. (laughs) Regs. Oh yeah, they absolutely fucking rule. (laughs) Me. This is just such a much more exciting album to listen to. Regs. I mean, there's a reason they're held up as one of the foundational art rock bands. Me. Anyway, I'm probably going to go listen, or I'm probably going to go from here to Melt Banana and then the screaming, uh, to Sea Girl screaming, kiss her, kiss her. Maybe a layover in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks first. A thing about me is that I like when the music is very noisy and it's a girl screaming. See also, <laughs> just thought of a fun thing. Oh, this is the, uh, if I ever bring Kuk to hot singles. Um, yeah, I'm just going to have a lot of fun hearing uh, Ottoman Rags try and pronounce it. And then we can start talking <laughs> about if I, you know, plans for the next hot single. So um, <laughs> you, that the, was my the, initial reaction. <laughs> the non-Icelandic speaking peons struggling yeah. with this term. It's always good for a laugh. But yeah, I like, I mean, I listened to it a few more times. I, I think... I I got into it a little bit more, but still what I find... Like, I think... My favorite part of this entire album is the thing of when it came out, 
they are one minute tracks and there are 40 tracks and the ad time on like these radio stations were one minute. Like you could buy one minute ads. And so they bought 41 minute ads so that the way that it like worked out is every three days, the entire album was played on the radio. And the idea of one, like we're doing this pastiche of like jingle and pop song, but then also as part of the pastiche or like the send up or the satire, we are including that like the thing that gets you on the radio is money. And like we can get this entire album on the radio with money <laughs> is also yeah. like a very interesting thing to me. And I listened to it and I like I started to feel like I started to enjoy the music a little bit more. And yet I still like another one that I listened to is this uh, Icelandic like post-punk band Yoni Yoni and that's like another one that I'm just like you know the Yoni Yoni album was like 1982 I think and so it's slightly after the commercial album but it's just like also this like very weird experimental album but like I just enjoy it more and it's like it's one of those things where I'm like there are other things that I can even see like possibly come out of what the residents did that I still just like find more like exciting or like joyous for me to listen to in the like actual act of listening to it outside of the like appreciation that I have for this album in like a more conceptual space. Um, So I think that's where I am with this album is like conceptually and like it's place in history. I have like, I respect this album and yet I'm probably not going to listen to it a lot because there are other albums that are like, more experientially exciting for me to like actually spend time in if that makes sense (laughs) yeah yeah it does and um and i i also like i want to put forward that it is not that like this music is abrasive in some way because all the things that i'm citing are also like very abrasive noisy music right it's just in a way that like feels for me more like exciting about like what can what feels like unexpected and unexpected in ways that like excite me about music like in comparison to this which is like maybe i'm getting ahead in your notes but you talk about how they like are incorporating noise and industrial and electronica and yet somehow arrive at this twisted inverted form of pop that still works as pop and it's like in some ways that it like still works as pop that like i don't know like if i want we're doing all of this stuff and we're putting it into pop, then I'm going to listen to the sugar cubes, <laughs> even though that came later. So it like could even be influenced by this. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I understand where you're coming from. And it's funny because like, I, the way that I enjoy this album is so different. It's like the, the exact opposite uh, almost of, of what you're describing. But I do think some comparisons between like some of the stuff that you're citing and the commercial album will actually like help me express what I what I do find interesting about it. So I uh, yeah, in the first instance, like I think we can agree the album doesn't really go hard, like exactly. It's its aesthetic is not in a way that is like obviously distinct from something like suicide. Like its aesthetic is very much like 
it, it's it's not going hard. Like it's not aggressive. It's not abrasive. Like it doesn't lean into those aspects of noise music. But I think it is like leaning into the other aspects of noise music, such as like uncanniness and malaise and the unexpected, like in in different ways. And I think the the first one is obviously the structure of the album. Like they are well, I'll just pause it. Like the first thing that really impresses me about this album is that there's 40 tracks that they're they're all like one minute. And none of them like even remotely resemble a commercial jingle. <laughs> um they are like shockingly tight and like some of them shockingly catchy, like experimental. I, I'll call it like micro pop, like vignettes. And the thing that is uh, impressive to me is that they all have like a very distinct mood within the span of one minute. Not only are they able to establish, to pull off like in almost every case, a really interesting like composition, um, but they're able to establish like a unique mood in almost every track. And they're all like somehow completely distinct and memorable, yet like seamlessly enmeshed. And I think two examples are like the first two tracks where there's like a turn, the transition of the two tracks is a turn to this like um, from like a trailing off of the first chorus of the chorus of the first song uh, to this sudden like big like heavy dark industrial beat and it's extremely striking as a turn that could happen in like a normal song and it flows like that but it's it's still like you know also two distinct songs at the same time the other uh the other two tracks that I feel like really encapsulate this are Secrets and Dying Terror, where like they almost form a narrative together. And sonically, like again, they can fit together as a song that would just like a song that transitions in the middle. But if you take them apart, they both work like individually as well. And this is where I'm going to kind of like get back around to your point. They are incorporating. The Residents are interesting, especially on this album, because I think the best way you can classify this music is experimental. Yeah. They are, like, incorporating elements of noise and industrial and just, like, straight-up electronic, but they're not doing any of those genres. Well, not the electronics of genre, but they're not doing any of those forms of music. They're, like, cobbling together all of these diverse elements that shouldn't really like logically work together. And then somehow like through some weird alchemy, piecing them together into like these really tight compositions that they work as pop, but they're not pop. Like they are these little like micro art pieces that again, like, hit hit as pop and are convincing as pop um but they don't have the dna of pop music yeah and i think that introduces like an element of uncanniness 
that is really interesting when considered alongside like what they're trying to do in terms of deconstructing pop music as a form. I think the the closest comparison, like for me, that comes to mind is Throbbing Gristle's 20 Jazz Funk Greats, which came out the previous year. But the main difference for me is that 20 Jazz Funk Greats has like a lot of the same ideas about like commercialism and like atmosphere and themes. And it has a lot of the same like vibes of like this immense creepiness paired with a kind of like this pop or catchy sensibility bubbling to the surface. But Throbbing Gristle is like, the point of their music is to like scare you or to like disturb you deeply and any elements of like humor or cheekiness of which there are many are mainly like deployed to make it more creepy. Like to take another example from Thought and Gristle, something like Slugbait is it's intended to be like a horror song, but though like the delivery of the vocals and like the, the way that the vocals are like metered out is supposed to be like a little funny, but then increasingly get weirder and like more terrifying. Whereas the residents, they're not trying to like horrify you. They're trying to like entertain and amuse ultimately. Um, yeah, this is, this is like the most uncharitable thing that I could say. Like, I don't actually believe this, but there is a certain amount of the commercial album that feels like the monster mash. <laughs> right. Or like that, like era of pop of like, Oh, we're going to do like this kind of thematic, like, you know, universal monsters are, are popular right now kind of thing. And obviously like, I think sonically, the commercial album is a lot more interesting than monster mash, but I think especially when it comes into like, what are the creepy elements here? Um, and especially in the commercial album in the ways that it like often isn't actually that like scary or deeply unsettling. It's just like a little off and, and weird. Like that's where I'm getting the most, like, again, I don't actually believe it. It's like the most uncharitable way of putting it, but like the monster mashiness, <laughs> Um, yeah I, I mean the the other thing i can i i might compare to which i mean this is i think it came out in 2000 are you familiar with quasimodo the side project of madlib yeah yeah i am um i think my favorite quasimodo song is come on feet um <laughs> and yeah. it is like quasimodo in general with like the the lord quas has like this high-pitched voice that like I think is meant to be somewhat unsettling. Um, and come on feet is just like, I, I love, I've, I was listening to come on feet in the background while we were talking. Come on, Nace. Don't be me. Come on, Nace. Cause that ain't the first red you ever seen. Come on, Pete. Do your thing. Come on, baby. Don't cop out on me. Come on, baby. Don't get in on me. Come on, Nace. Come on, cruise for me
but yeah, like, and it, it is again, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I feel like some of the stuff is like hitting on it in ways that are more exciting for me, even as I like appreciate what they're doing. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point. the The distinction that I would make is, for me, Monster Mash is like, Monster Mash is camp, right? It's yeah. like intentionally, you know. It is comically like playing on like some specific like horror movie Halloween-y shit in like a way that is supposed to be like campy party music. Yeah. Um, and I think s- Suicide, like, and don't get me wrong, because Suicide's like the fir- uh, Suicide 1 is obviously a classic album that I enjoy very much and has been very influential on me. But something like Frankie Teardrop, it's like... There's there's diminishing returns to, like... Like, you can go hard and then be, like... You can go hard and then have less of, a, of an effect than, like, you want to because you're just, like... It's so obvious that you're just, like, trying to go as hard as possible. And, you know, Frankie Teardrop is a, an immensely influential song, and I'm not, like, ripping on it or whatever, but it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, like, I, I get your point. <laughs> like, you're just, like, trying to go really hard and be, like, as horrific as possible. And I don't think, like, between that and the Monster Mash thing... I don't think the residents were doing like either of those things. Yeah. I, I think they are it insofar as it is like a satire, I think it is like I think the main point of the satire, I think what it ultimately does is it like articulates this it anticipates like US culture in the eighties and it's tapping into like the malaise of like suburban life and like the repress like the extreme repression of like conservative American culture. But it's not doing that in like, oh, here's a story of like this working class guy who just, you know, has a horrific like and, and just like it's an explicit story of this working class guy who's just like abused and destroyed by American capitalism. And, and that's that's all very on the nose, you know? I think the residents are, like, doing something that is, in a way, it's much more indirect. And they're playing with the uncanny in a way that is, like, it's almost aloof, and it doesn't... 
I don't think it descends into camp. It's, but it doesn't resist camp, but it like, I don't think it descends into it. And what impresses me is the fact that they're like, you know, I, I personally never feel like the creepiness is the goal. I'm never overwhelmed with the creepiness, but it's like still unmistakable. And like, uh, it, it's still like, for me, it still really hits along with like, you know, obviously like I admire the composition of the songs. Like I said before, I think the fact that they are like catchy in spite of all of this is crazy <laughs> um, and impressive. And I also like, I think that, it, I don't know if I want to say this album is influential because um, I, I know for a fact that it's influenced like some artists, but I do think it sonically anticipates a lot of stuff in a way that is significant. Like for example, the song Red Rider sounds exactly like Silent Shout Air and the Knife. Like it sounds exactly I, I laughed like, when I saw that note because I think that was my favorite song. It literally like go back and listen to Red Rider. I it sounds I have, while you've exactly been talking. it sounds exactly like Silent Shout Era the Knife. Um in a way that is freaking eerie. I will probably use it as the outro for this episode, so people can listen to it there too if they don't want to stop and pull it up right now. Yeah, it's it's like an exact match. Um, so I don't know if the knife is listening to the residents. I honestly wouldn't be surprised at all, but the residents are like sonically anticipating that era of their music for sure. So yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about this for me is that it's not like it, it is humorous, but on the way, like, it, it somehow goes through, like, this, like, edgy, creepy, like, horror, like, atmosphere on a way to get back to, like, humor. But the humor is not, like, it doesn't placate you. Like, it's not a complacent humor, um, and it's not a meaningless humor. Like, it's satirical in a way that is... I think actually really rich and it, it's able to somehow like have these immense moods of creepiness without just being like, yeah, we're creeping you out. Like, or like, Ooh, it's monster mash. It, it's all just incidental to like ultimately uh, a final product that is again, like it's, it's not really edgy, but it is, on my view, it, it is, like, challenging. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to my non-anime thing? But, <laughs> yeah. again, it's somewhat anime. <laughs> um, yes, very anime, I think. So, yeah. Uh, for my fairly anime, non-anime thing, I brought Attack of the Friday Monsters. So, yeah. I A little bit of background about why I, I brought this. The first thing is that we just finished recording the episodes for the show Evangelion. We still haven't done end of Evangelion, but we, we recorded all of the show and it is a, a very heavy show. And we talked a lot about it and, you know, preview for what's ahead. I think we just, dis- we disagreed the most about anything that we have so far in, in still ways that are like interesting. We're talking about the space between, but I think it's the most like fundamental divide that we've had on, on a few things, even though I think in many ways we still have the same feelings in the end about the series. Yeah. And 
yeah, so part of it was just like, I've been talking about this incredibly heavy show. We're going to watch End of Evangelion soon. I just wanted to talk about something that wasn't going to be like incredibly heavy and depressing um, as my like non-anime thing. And friend of the pod, Autumn, recently played for the first time Attack of the Friday Monsters. And it reminded me of this game that I enjoyed a lot back when I first uh, like when it first came out and I got it on 3DS. And so I was like, if I remember correctly, that's a pretty short game. And I was right. It's like four, maybe five hours to beat. And I vaguely remembered some of the plot of it. Um, it's kind of tokusatsu adjacent. It's really like. So, you know, the basic premise being like, oh, it new kid moves to this town and it's this town where every Friday, like a kaiju attacks. There's the Friday monster. And. You know, the, the plot ends up, I, I would say the closest parallel is like Ultraman, where, you know, a, a hero grows really big to fight the kaiju. And so, and it, like, I remembered also that it had some thematic things around, like, the relationship between the, the kid and the father in this way that I'm like, it feels like it's like, in some ways, close to what what is Evangelion and in other ways, like such a palate cleanse. It's like so much sweeter and like the opposite. And, yeah. Like opposite in terms of like everything either other than like fighting giant Kaiju and relationship between like a child and his father. <laughs> um, and so I was like, I, I want to revisit it and talk about it. I actually just decided that I was going to do it on the podcast before I'd actually replayed it. And so I like replayed it this week and it's one of these things where, so like, I'm going to get started. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to read what Ian wrote in here. Um, so they say, I haven't played this one almost since it uh, came out and my 3DS is half a country away. So I didn't get a chance to replay it in time for this, but I really love it. Even though my childhood was nothing like this at all. The game is so good at capturing what it feels like to be a kid doing kid shit, or at least what I imagine it would be like to have the freedom to do kid shit in a safe and unsupervised community, inventing all these weird little mysteries and events, failing to communicate their importance to the adults around you, similarly letting the complexities of adult life just whiz right over your snot-nosed little head. But in the world of Attack of the Friday Monsters, none of this is ever in a really dark or mean way, even though some of those kids are assholes, helpfully labeled mean kids by the game, if I recall correctly. And of course, when I say you're inventing mysteries and stuff in this game that has to come with a healthy, or are you, with lots of question marks, it's all very precious. I love it. Going to play it as soon as I get my 3DS back. I don't even have to hear you talk about it. Just be reminded it exists and get excited. Um, I should have done this before we started recording, but I'm going to quick just look up when was Attack of the Friday Monsters released? 2013. Um, 2013. I think. So, yeah, that was... I just want to, like, double check. Yeah. So that was, like, a little before I figured out I was trans. And I'm bringing this up for, like, a specific reason, which is that I haven't played it since it came out. And I played it when I had, like, a very different conception of myself and also, like, my relationships broadly. Replaying this game was an, was an interesting experience for me because in many ways, like, there is something really heartwarming and precious. And I, I do have fondness for this game. I love this game a lot. This game is also nothing like my childhood but I think in very different ways than Ian is describing. I grew up in 
like the ways that this is like my childhood is that the subtitle I think for this is a Tokyo tale, but it really feels like if it, this is Tokyo, it's like a very small community, perhaps mm-hmm. on the outskirts. Um, it feels decidedly like rural mm-hmm. in a way that like, this is not like set in Shibuya or anything like that. <laughs> like this is not like the main metropolitan, like downtown huge neighborhoods of, of Tokyo. Yeah, it's it's like a village or like a town at best. Yeah. And it it is like very demarcated like here are the limits and a lot of them are like very clearly roads out of town. I think the one where the like you have a greater sense of there is some more community is just that like this community is cut off from like basically a town or something that's on the other side just because trains run all the time and so you can like never actually get across the train tracks very often which you never do in the game, but it's like remarked upon that. I think at like night is when people can go back and forth because the trains aren't running as much. And there's like a thing of like, Oh, they, there was a strike once and then like people could walk, but then the people who had to get to work had to like walk miles down the train tracks themselves. But so I grew up in this like small town in Michigan that is, it's a very small town. It's it's actually not as small as Emily's town, but the the main reason why it wasn't as small is because there were a lot of farms attached to it, and those farms in particular were like larger commercial farms. And so, the notable thing about this town is that basically, for half the year, like the the warmer months, the town size would basically double as a bunch of migrant workers from primarily Mexico would come to work and like pick fruit. And so the demographics of the town that I grew up in was very poor white and then half the year also poor like Latinx or Hispanic, primarily Mexican again. And so like for me as a kid growing up, I'm the most, most of my friends, like the people who I would call friends were white because they were the people who were around all the time. And yet I also interacted a lot with especially you know, Spanish speaking Mexican kids. And often there would be a, a a language gap that was a thing that like as kids you can kind of work around sometimes, but also meant I never felt super close to those kids. And yet also meant that while I grew up with largely very like white cuisine as a kid, I also grew up like eating tamales and things because this was just like a part of like what that town was at times. But what what's really significant here is that like I play this game and I see this town as being a very rural and also fairly poor town. You see like a little bakery, a, a ramen restaurant that's like basically a hole in the wall next to the train tracks. Your father is like a dry cleaner. You're, there is technically like the part that's weird about it is that there's this like TV studio, but aside from like the people who work at the TV studio, it feels very like poor and rural to me. And that was what I grew up in. And I also grew up doing a lot of the kid shit of like literally behind my house was just some farmer's wheat field. And like, I would literally be like running through fields of wheat where like, I couldn't even see because the wheat was so tall. Um, I would be like, climbing up hills and going like weird places to get to like do the shortcut to the 
grocery or not the grocery store, the the gas station where I would for like 25 cents or whatever, buy like a Tootsie roll as like the candy that I could buy for like the week or whatever. And for a long time, I kind of just like looked back fondly on my childhood in a way where I think when I first played this game, it really like just hit me as like, oh, this is what my, my childhood was. And as I've continued to get older and also as I, I came out as trans, I think like my perception of my childhood has shifted in part because even though my parents are still fairly loving and supportive, like I haven't been like ostracized for my family. I've also seen how my relationship with my parents has changed, how they no longer relate to me the same way. They still, it's been seven years and struggle with my names, my name and my pronouns. And especially going through that process that I think a lot of trans people go through where you begin to see like, what are the limits of this love that I'm getting from my parents? It also then often causes you to begin to look more critically at your own childhood and the way that you related to it. And part of what's freeing about my childhood, this like freedom to do kid shit that's portrayed in this game was very much like my childhood but i was also i was the youngest of five or on weekends the youngest of six because there was a girl who was like around my my closest in age brother's age who would come and stay with us because her mom worked weekends and her dad was abusive and her mom was trying to spare her a thing that i like never put together until literally recently i was making jiffy corn pancakes which is what we ate every weekend and i was remembering my dad telling me once oh do you know why we always ate jiffy corn pancakes it was because there was really they were really cheap and we had an extra mouth to feed on the weekends and then i was just like fully putting together what i knew since then about like her and everything and, and beginning to to see this like somewhat bleaker view of the community that i grew up in and so the other thing is that like a lot of the memories that I have from a childhood, there is this like great freedom of I'm just a kid running around this town doing kid shit, very unsupervised. And there's this like kind of safety that I think if you watch like David Lynch <laughs> movies, you know, that there's like darkness often um, <laughs> lurking underneath that in certain ways. But it was not like I as a kid running around the town was like going to be in danger. The the danger that existed was like far more domestic than that uh, if that makes sense and so yeah it, it was like the other memories that i have are these things of me being completely alone in a mall and just like knowing who to go to to tell them to page my parents because i was the youngest of five and i got left behind all the time i have a, a very strong memory of we were going on a family trip and we had to stop because my mom had to get something from the school where she worked and i had to go to the bathroom and then they just left without me and i was just alone in an empty school because it was like it wasn't school in session my mom was just like going in to get something and eventually they realized that I was not in the car and came back for me. And so there is like, this game never really touches on this darkness. And yet I realized in playing this, that I think my childhood, my childhood was not the darkness of Evangelion, but it's like somewhere between these two poles and in, the, in this weird way that playing it and seeing this very like idyllic, like pastoral construction of this is like childhood and like this, like pure, like wonderful childhood 
like it, it hit me weirder this time. And so I did not go into discussing this expecting that this was going to be what I was going to be talking about. I thought I was just gonna be like, oh, it's a really cute game about like your dad and, you know, your your dad becomes the tokusatsu hero who fights off and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it, it was like how this ended up hitting me it was um, I love this game a lot. This game also feels... This game ended up chafing against me in this way of there's this really bad tweet and I, I like I'm not going to pull it up because it was who knows who it was even by or whatever. But it was basically like you shouldn't have like teens in a movie or like a TV show doing something that would then give the rating where teens couldn't be able to see it because it's involving like sex or drugs. And it's like I was a punk rock kid in high school and i was like you know doing drugs and like having severe depression and everything um and it's just like how how do i tell stories about my own childhood if i'm gonna follow these rules of like like my childhood was not pg-13 <laughs> right yeah um yeah, let's just let the ratings board decide like, yeah <laughs> dictate all of the content of all, that, all of our stories from now on and that's the other thing about the like ratings board thing too is just like there's such a long history of like ratings board style things also being used to like suppress queer content in media that i'm like do we do we really want this to be our barometer for like what is acceptable in media is like oh can the child who's watching it or is like being depicted would they be able to watch it based off the ratings board like that that feels so untrue to me about my own childhood and and everything and is this attempt that i think happens and that i achieve like this is the reason why i struggle a lot with a lot of disney things is also because there's like this there's often the sugarcoating of childhood that um can sometimes be sweet and nice and yet can also I like part of me plays it now and it is envious of the people for who this can just like be completely uncomplicated um, because for me it's not. And so like I, a game that I have very mixed feelings about, but that I, I, the longer I spend not playing it, the more I love it. Tulip, like I think actually hits more closely on what, what was my childhood, which that is a game where you're a kid like wandering around trying to kiss a bunch of people. And I'm not saying that I was wandering around trying to kiss everybody, but there's like, there is a weirdness and an unsettling nature to Tulip that feels more true to my childhood than Attack of the Friday Monsters did when I replayed it this time. And also in a way where, I look at I think about the last time I played it and the way that it didn't feel complicated in this way. And I, I think some of that is just like the ways that I was still denying what my childhood was in many ways. So yeah, I I like I love this game a lot. I I I do recommend it. I think it's again, if you are in the middle of watching Evangelion coming up and you're like, I really need a palate cleanser, I think it is a fun palate cleanser. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you have thoughts. I know you you watched a Let's Play. You don't have a 3DS, but you watched a, a playthrough. Yeah, yeah, I did. I watched a whole <clears throat> a whole playthrough of the game, um, so I didn't actually play it. But like, you know, I've I've simulated playing it, and I think to pick up on the point you were making, 
And also tying back into Ian's comment, there is a there's a place for media that does this. Um, yeah, like this Disney type. Or you know. Ghibli is another thing that really jumped out at me when I was playing this. Like it feels, it feels Ghibli or Ghibli or however you say it to me. In a way that it's also unsurprising that this was level five, who then went on to do the Nino Kuni games. Um, yeah, like the idealized vision of childhood that, you know, it that erases or minimizes or minimizes or glides over like all of the traumatic stuff that depending on who you ask, either often or of, or like necessarily goes along with the experience of like childhood, there's a place for it. And, and I don't think media yeah. that does it is just fundamentally wrong. Um, but this is also where like watching this playthrough at the same time as recording Ava, like Friday Monsters, it is refreshing in a sense. But it's just like, it has made me, I don't know what the right word is for this, but um, the the conclusion of it for me is like, I turn back to Ava and I'm like, you know, at least like, I appreciate that Ava is trying to engage with how dark and traumatic and like painful childhood often is. And again, depending on who you ask, like either often or necessarily like is. And they're like, even if Ava, you know, you'll hear us talk about this, like maybe has flaws or is even perhaps even cruel. It is taking this seriously um, in a way that like is meaningful and I think important. Yeah. And for me, like I think I have a somewhat similar like reaction as you do where I'm like, I, so first of all, like it's weird for me to see anything like this because I have a like a complex relationship with nostalgia because I just don't honestly like I don't remember very much of my childhood at all. Um, yeah. Prior also, to there are there are a lot of gaps in my memory. <laughs> yeah. So I maybe like maybe maybe we share this feeling of like it. It's like, oh yeah, all of these experiences, whenever I see something where it's just like, oh yeah, here's this idealized picture of childhood and like, you know, isn't it so like amazing to be a child and like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, it's weird to just feel this void because I don't remember anything from like prior to, you know, like age 13 or whatever, or I remember very little. So 
I can't help but be like a little bit um, like it, yeah I, I to if I can like quick interject yeah I think one thing here that does ring true for me is like most of the memories that I have from from childhood are of media. And when I think about it, it's probably because I was often using things like video games and movies and television to escape from like the reality of, again, I don't think like I had a a particularly like abusive home life, but I think I was often, um, I don't even know if neglect is quite the right word, but I like, I, I was one of five and I like, that was a part of how I, I grew up. Um, and then you mix in with that, just like the extreme gender trauma of being a trans kid and not knowing it. I spent a lot of time just like escaping the feeling of being in my body by playing a video game. And so I have like extensive memories of lots of games that I've played. And the part of this that rings true to me is the way that I think this game is intentionally like showing how the memories that these kids might have of like the uh, tokusatsu show that they watched that was maybe produced in town becomes mingled with like the things that they were actually doing in their daily lives that it was not just that like the monsters came on tv but that they actually came to the town and the ways that like you know there's stuff where it's like oh there are these tracks but then someone's like oh i saw someone digging holes and it's like oh they were probably digging them so that they could film a scene of people looking at the tracks or whatever um but then you're looking at it being like oh this is evidence of monsters um and then the the game complicates that by having like some of this stuff become real or be suggested to be real and i think some of it is playing into how your your memories become commingled with like the more fantastical things that you're watching as a kid um that did fe- feel somewhat real but again like it's not suggested here that the kids are like having these fantasies of monsters because they're trying to escape from anything and i'm i'm not saying that the game needs that yeah. but that would be closer to like what my childhood experience would be yeah and and I appreciate you, like, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because for me as well, like, the memories that I do have, the, the way that I can connect with this game is, like, the memories I do have are, like, of playing a lot of video games with, like, my best friend at the time who's still, like, one of my best friends today. And we also did, like, you know, make-believe, like, fantasy games like you do when you're when you're a kid, like running around and be like, yeah. Oh, what character are you? Like, okay, I'm this character. And you just be like in your backyard, like playing make believe essentially. And I did that for like longer than normal. Cause I remember like <laughs> my friend being like, Hey, like we should like, this is dumb. Like we shouldn't play these games anymore. Cause I'm not interested in it. And then for a while after that, like wanting to still like play that type of game, um, which is like, you know, so I, I do like strongly connect with, you know, the fact that that's what these kids are doing, like all the time, like in this game, running around playing make-believe. Um, yeah. I don't think I've told this story on the podcast, but uh, I accidentally became the like 
the head boss of like a Pokemon mafia at my school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I was the kid who introduced Pokemon because again, I was just like always playing video games to escape my, my corporeal form. And so like I got Pokemon the day it came out and was like, this game is great and was telling everyone to get it. And of course, like everybody was going to end up playing it anyways, cause it was fucking Pokemon. But like the fact that I was the kid who the very first day had it and was telling people meant that like everyone looked at me as like the one who introduced the school of Pokemon, even though I'm sure that's not actually how it happened. Um, <laughs> Like in terms of just like, that's not how Pokemon worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and so then I had like some friends and I was like, okay, I do lots of origami too. I'm going to make us all rings and then like do like some sort of lacquer on it or something. So it wouldn't like break down. Um, but I did these Pikachu rings and so I gave them to like all of my friends. And then that became like a signal in the school of like the people who were like the Pokemon experts And then that turned into, like, one of my friends fleecing kids out of Pokemon cards by, like, doing bad trades and, like, (laughs) yeah, it just, like, became this, like, weird ring of, like... Organized crime. Yeah, like, I I needed this card for my deck and my friend was just like, don't worry, I've got you. Uh, You know, (laughs) do do you have a regular Pikachu card? Yes? Okay, I'm gonna, like, you know, find out after the fact, oh yeah, I lied to this kid that it's the rare one that's, like, the misprint. (laughs) (laughs) that's going to be like way more valuable than that charizard you have or whatever it's a good lieutenant you have there um totally scammed a kid out of a mew that we went to the pokemon convention and the line to try and get a mew was like so so huge and then uh my friend scammed a kid who waited in line out of his mew so they didn't have to wait in line so (laughs) um and then like all it was just like I just like fell into this. This was not, I did not attempt to set up a Pokemon mafia empire. Um, This is just what it is. And then like rival gangs formed, like there was the Chars, which is Charmander themed. I don't remember the other one. It was like Squirtle themed, but they sucked. Like nobody respected them. So I don't even remember them anymore. I mean, Um, they were Squirtle themed. And then there were the, the Raichus, which were like, obviously just trying to one up us because we were the Pikachus. But, um, Nobody never, ever like fully matched us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, my yeah, diversion so, into so, a memory that I have based around video games and being like no good kids doing kid shit. <laughs> yeah. And also like that's it's funny that you bring that up because the other thing that I was going to say where I really connect like with uh, with this game and where it really did like warm my heart <clears throat> is and I've, I know I've told you this story here like recently when I was like a young kid, I was super into Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, and like very few people in my like social circle were into Yu-Gi-Oh! also. So I just like built this insanely strong deck. And then I would go around like I had like the little paper like dueling arena that you would lay lay down on the ground and then like it had all of the you know, the spot for your deck and the spots for all the cards and whatever. And I would like fold it up in like my back pocket and walk around with my deck and go from like door to door to every house that I knew, like a kid of my age lived at and like knock on their door and try and like get them to duel me in Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> and it got to the point where like, even I would walk around with like two decks. 
So I would have like my sweet souped up deck. And then I would have yeah. the one with like all of the cards I didn't want that like stood no chance against my deck. And I, if like I would show up to people's houses and be like, hey, you want to duel me in Yu-Gi-Oh? And then they would be like, I don't have a deck. And I'd be like, oh, okay, no, it's cool. I have one for you. And try to like make them use my deck to play me. Yeah. So the like watching the main character go around to like every kid in the town or whatever and just be like, okay, play me in cards. Like over and over again. Yeah, that really hit for me. I, I really enjoyed that. But uh so those are the aspects of like of the game that I really that really hit for me and that I appreciated. And it sounds like I mean, it sounds like we agree or like largely share the same experience on that side. But I also like, again, um, as someone who comes from like, I have a bunch of stuff with my family as well that like, I'm intentionally not going to talk about now because I want to talk about it during like our, the EOE episode, but I have a bunch of stuff with my family that like is related to you know, probably why I can't remember a lot from that time. And so it just, it somewhat rubs me the wrong way when I see stuff that's just like, that is just idyllic in the way of like, and, and again, this series, or not series, this game, like, to be fair, I think it is trying to temper the like, pastoralism somewhat with like the backdrop of pollution and stuff. So, you know, I want to be fair and I think we might end up discussing this in a second, but like the game isn't just entirely like blindly idealistic and pastoral, but like with regard to how it depicts like childhood, it, it pretty much is. And there's something about that, that like for me as well, it, it just kind of, it doesn't move me that much. Yeah. I like, I think the one part that connected with me perhaps the most is there. Like it doesn't get dark again, or like, I think there, there is a difference between like dark and mean here. Like Ian mentions both of those, but there's this like suggestion of something going on with the dad where like, you know, the dad didn't get into the whatever guardian the um yeah um and like when talking to the kid it's like oh i didn't like become a part of the force like like you did but you know there we get a shot of like applied to be the hero didn't get the job is now working as a dry cleaner but there is a certain amount of like with that and then they're like oh son like you you are you know, the hero who should like save the day or whatever. Um, and then the father, like finally getting to, to do that role. It's all this stuff of like, like, I think the part where I still have like fondness in my heart for, for a game like this is that this game does not represent my childhood. And yet, like, I hope that my child's childhood is closer to this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that's where like some of this even comes from, like this, but, and I, I think this, I probably temper it more than this game does, but, um, cause that's the, like, 
One of the books that I have for my kid is this book called My Father's Arms Are a Boat. It is a really touching and and beautiful book, um, but it is a book that is about a father and a child and the mother has died. And it is, that is never explicitly named, and yet it, it is talked about in ways where they talk about, like, the mother sleeping or they talk about, you know, the, like who's coming to eat the bread that we put out. We're putting it out for the birds, but like the fox is coming in to eat it, you know, talking about spirits and things like that. And when I had it, my, like I showed it to my mom once and she said like, doesn't this seem dark for a child? And I thought like, there are kids who have lost their mom. Yeah. And for that child, like this book would be incredibly helpful. And for my child to be able to have access to a book that would help them be able to understand what a friend might be going through or like what other people have experienced. Like, I don't think that is a, I, I do not want to present a view of the world to my child that is like fully denying that bad things can happen, which I think is often an approach that happens and I understand where it comes from, but I think, um, and this is not like I'm like every day telling my child the horrors of the world <laughs> either, yeah, yeah. but like, I think there's a value, especially in media that is like dealing with it, um, constructively and, and with like a certain heart and sensitivity. Like I would not like set my child down and have them watch Evangelion right now. <laughs> yeah but you know we we've watched some episodes my my child's like just beginning to speak words we've watched some episodes of card captor sakura which is a show that still like goes to some dark places we haven't gotten to like the later parts that get darker but like there there's like a certain attempt to protect protect children from any sort of like darkness as well that I think can in some ways backfire because I, on one end, like I think my parents were trying to, to do that. And on the other end, I think like, I don't know how much it really helped. And on then also I was the youngest of five, which just meant there's like no way they were going to be able to convince me that everyone else, but me got to watch the shining. So I watched the shining when I was five. Um, and I don't think that's the thing that was like traumatic about my childhood is that I watched the shining when I was five. I think the things that were traumatic about my childhood were like other things that actually being able to access some of that media, just because like it was so hard to control when I was the youngest of five may have actually helped me process some of it in, in ways at the time. Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> if to, to go along with what you're saying, like if this stuff just exists, like, trauma and horror and like all sorts of pain they do exist in the world and at some point like probably every human is going by virtue of existing in the world and like being living with other humans you will be exposed to that yeah so you know and again, I, I'm not speaking from experience because I'm not a parent and like you have, yeah, you know, like the authority of experience here, <laughs> but like what you, I don't think you're sparing your child. Like it, it's, it's almost in a way doing a violence to your child by like 
artificially insulating them from like like curating their experience of reality in a way that like sets them up to be traumatized later essentially yeah um, and to to not encounter these things in more controlled environments where you can like help the child deal with the complex emotions in ways that will be that will like better set them up to deal with it when it is no longer a like fairly heartfelt and sweet book about a family where the mother has died and it is now like a more like real and painful thing that is happening in like their life or the life of someone that they know or whatever um like i I think some of this stuff of like i don't know we have some questions here from like Joao, and I feel like we're kind of talking around one of them here. So I, I'm going to read this one of like, how do you feel about grittiness as an aesthetic and a style of storytelling? Do your feelings on it change depending on the medium of what you're consuming? Um, and I think one of the things that we're talking around here is like, I, I, I think I enjoy it the most when there's some sort of balance struck and this kind of doesn't depend on the, the medium, but like, I don't, I can still appreciate something that is, like, fairly sweet or, you know, like, light in these various ways. And I can also appreciate things that are, like, very dark. But I think I I like, like, my, the thing I gravitate towards the most is, like, what I would describe as bittersweet, where the, the part that is, like, what I'm really grasping onto is, like, look at... Like, here are some, to to varying degrees, like, here are things that are difficult that exist that you are going to encounter as a human being. But then also, like, what is the, like, hope or what is the, like, the humanity or the connection between people or whatever? Like, what is that sweetness as well? And that balance is what works the most for me because in some ways it's, like, what my, my life has been the most. Um, but also because I, I think it, those kinds of stories, I think, are things that can help you process things that you're going through and not just like fully dwell in the the darkness of it or try to ignore the darkness that can occur in life. And like specifically for this question with the grittiness, I think there's also a specific sense of grittiness that like Joel might be pointing here, which is like, oh, we're going to do the gritty reboot of this, like, childhood property or whatever. And some of that stuff, like, often just, like, I would describe as, like, edgelordy or something Uh in this way that, like, doesn't actually feel genuine to, like, we are actually taking seriously and talking about these dark things, but rather, like, we are just presenting this darkness or this grittiness. It's a stylistic, like, exercise. Yeah, like, stylistically, because it makes it cool or whatever. And I, like, I don't like that because if you're going to, like, if you're going to go in that direction, like, deal with it in some meaningful way, even if it's something like Evangelion, which I think is like fairly bleak, or I mean, we talked about some of the bleakness that I see in that way with MS team as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still dealing with it in like a way that feels like true and is like actually trying to explore these complex things and not just being like, whoa, wouldn't it be like really shocking if this thing happened without like any actual, I think, like understanding of that. I think that like aesthetic of grittiness that sometimes comes up often even seems to come from this perspective of like the feeling I often have is like of people who maybe have not even actually experienced these dark things and are like 
leaning into it as just like, oh, this is like cool or interesting rather than like, this is actually me trying to talk about something in some meaningful way. Or they haven't thought through like what's interesting about the actual material they're like (laughs) working with. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think I, I just agree with you and to bring it back to O8th MS team. I, I often think about like forming content. So like I, there are a great many pieces of media that are just like, where I think that there is a disconnect or like there's just, how should I put this? Um, There's not a compelling connection between like having a gritty, like aesthetic in the form um, and then whatever like is being conveyed. I think with MS team to like circle back to what I was trying to say earlier, like, I think the interesting thing about that is there does seem to be some connection. Like the grittiness makes sense because like all of this like, you know, hard sci-fi and like quote unquote gritty like combat realism minutia stuff does help like it bring out these themes and help portray like a world they're trying to portray. And I don't necessarily need like I don't need there to be, you know, some sort of resolution of like, oh, hey, here's these like horrible events that we're going to present like in their horror, but also like, you know, here's some hopeful like thing we're drawing out of it. I don't even need it to go that far. I just think it's interesting if like, if the grittiness like corresponds to something that I think the the media is is doing on a deeper level and is not just purely like exploitative or sensational like violence, which it it often is. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump around a little bit with some of Joe's questions here. Um. But sure. what what do you think about Tokusatsu? Uh, we can maybe quick address this because I think it's related to Attack of the Friday Monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I we're, like we're it, but I haven't seen it. a lot of it. Yeah, we're both against it firmly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I like it. I just haven't seen a lot of it. And I mean, part of it is that like I never got into Power Rangers as a kid when that was like a big thing. And I know power Rangers is like this, like weird version of tokusatsu, the way that it was received in the U S at the time. But I mean, the, the most, the biggest tokusatsu things that I've like consumed is Hideaki Anno's cutie honey live action movie, which is definitely tokusatsu. And also the common writer, Sega CD game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I mean, I, I've like seen some episodes and stuff. It's it's fine. I just it's like not a thing I've explored a lot, really. You hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I don't. It's just it's funny to just say like firm stance. Nope, we're against it. Um, <laughs> no, I've I've watched like I mean I have watched a lot of like many years ago. I watched a lot of the like you know old Godzilla stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, Godzilla is definitely, like, the thing, the movies 
are the thing that I've watched, which are, it definitely is in that space. Yeah, but unfortunately, I have no like interesting take on it. Yeah, I feel like if I was gonna get into Tokusatsu, it would be Common Rider. Um, I just have so many Common Rider f- fans as friends. But yeah, it's never it's never quite happened. I mean, Hideaki Anno's Cutie Honey movie. I'm a fan. <laughs> I like it. I still haven't seen that. <laughs> I don't know if either. that's a controversial opinion, but um, then uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna save the last one for last and we'll jump to this one. If given a choice of transporting an anime released in the 21st century, uh, that you could transport to the 90s, so it could have been a hit in a way that warps anime discourse forever, what would you choose? Uh, the coward's answer here is obviously Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. It's technically a 20. 20- uh, first century anime but um i i tried to think of like better ones i don't know if you have anything specific here connor <laughs> if if ta- taking literally the uh the proposal of the question in that like the series we're sending back would would be a hit <laughs> if i could like yeah if if i could use my time warping powers to ensure that a certain series is going to be a hit, it would obviously be Crow High. Yeah. Um, if I knew that it was like somehow going to be a hit back in the 90s. Um, Just imagine the where comedy could have gone from there by now. Yeah, comedy would be like hundreds of years ahead. <laughs> at this point, if if we if we could send like, it back in I time and like ensure <laughs> and ensure that it would be popular. Yeah. One of these things. So one of the things that this like question reveals is that I actually don't watch a lot of like new anime while it's coming out. I am very much the kind of person who will like wait years after a series has come out and been like, okay, like what's the read on it now? Do I want to watch it or not? This even includes stuff that, like, at the time, I'm like, this seems really interesting. Like, I've not watched Sarin's On My, but th- I'm probably going to. I've talked about us watching it for this this show, but I didn't watch it when I was coming out because I was just like, I don't know. I, like, I, for some reason, I don't want to commit to something until it's, like, complete <laughs> when it yeah. comes to anime. Um, it's, my, it's funny. My... Oh, you go. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, like, here we reveal, like the origin of ghost divers and why this is what our podcast is because I'm like the exact same way where I'm often just like, even if it's something I'm really interested in, I'm just like, I don't even want to like engage with this until everyone else has just forgotten about it. And I don't know why I like, I am that way, but I'm just like, if something is, is really like getting a lot of hype and a lot of people are talking about it. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I'll just like, for I'll like do uh, engage with it later, and just for my own opinion, when everyone stopped caring. Yeah. So on that topic, I have not watched a lot of anime from like the last ten years. Uh, so I looked up some and have like some joke answers. <laughs> First joke answer. Madoka Magica, just so that everyone who says that it's like revolutionary magical girl anime could actually be correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we... I feel like if that came out in the 90s, then it would actually would be like revolutionary and like this is truly doing something new with the form. Um, other joke answer is Kakaguri, 
which I haven't watched, but I've seen enough from it to know that the way that the they animate mouths and teeth is just incredibly horny in a way that like if there was just more really horny teeth in anime, I would be happy. Um, that's a, a very big joke answer. <laughs> and then probably the like most actually accurate true if I'm doing especially the last 10 years is probably Yuri on Ice. Um, which I know is like a hit, but just like imagining like a romance anime about, you know, boys love like doing like the ice skating and everything like that being in the nineties, that would be fucking great. (laughs) (laughs) So those are my like kind of joke answers. Yeah. I watch, I watch a fair amount of like, 21st century anime i guess in spite of what i just said earlier um there are some things that like that i watch that are more current i do really like my hero academia but we'll never talk about it on ghost divers and it's gonna uh, take a while for it to be not relevant i think yeah (laughs) yeah probably like 50 years at this rate yeah i really like psychopath season one that's a good one uh from the 21st century at some point, we'll just like, we'll just have it out with Madoka and take our shots at it. Um, but maybe not today, because I think that's one that we both like. We both knew someone recently who was like very, who thought Madoka was like just the bee's knees and talked about it often. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if I would go that far. So yeah, I also like um, Nozaki Kun. I I enjoyed that, but yeah, that's about like the extent of my you know last ten years anime watching. And then the final question here is thoughts on magical realism. This is one where I could go for hours, but I'm I'm not going to. I will. I'm sure I will bring some magical realism as like a non-anime thing at some point and, and get deeper into this. Um, I actually have been wanting to reread a book that is by an author who I think often kind of dabbles in magical realist stuff. It's probably one of his like least magical realist books, but uh, Moonstone, the boy who never was by Sion specifically because it is a book about like, I I think it's loosely based on his uncle's life, but it's set during the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, And it's about like this character who is basically a faggot living on the streets in Iceland. And it's been a, like I read it when it first came out and I've been wanting to, to reread it. But like, I feel like there are some other like, Icelandic magical realism that can make it its way on here. I think my big take that I'm going to put out here about magical realism is that I think the the term for me is often over applied by a lot of people in the West in a way that um, I think there are things that are like inspired by magical realism. And yet for me, part of what is inherent to magical realism is a certain response to like modern rational often colonialist like views of the world 
and often an assertion of a like beliefs that under colonialism are like written off as like irrational folk beliefs and a, a thing that is not just like fully asserting the folk beliefs as true, but it is like exploring the space between those in a way that like that it that is so much of what is the power of magical realism to me that it like it's not a coincidence that this genre like sprung up in Spanish speaking world post colonialism or or like even during colonialism. And so for me, there's a lot of stuff that gets described as magical realists, but that I don't think is actually like interestingly engaged in this space of like, what are, what is actual, like, what is the tension between the folk belief and the, the modern belief? And like, let us explore this in this way that is like actually challenging certain conceptions about the world and about reality. Um, and that instead gets applied to just like, oh, it's uncertain if it's, like, magical or not, or whatever, um, in this way that I think, like, lessens the actual bite of magical realism. So that's, that's my, like, very broad thoughts on magical realism. And so this is also one of those things of, like, like, when it comes to Sion, who's an Icelandic author, one, I think Iceland in some ways deals with the way that they got free from Danish colonialism was through, like, American globalism and that America occupying them during World War II and like occupying a base there. And so I think often stuff that's going to be interesting is going to come from that tension of being like subjected in various ways to, you know, traditional colonialism or like modern American colonialism. And I I often see it applied to things that I don't think are like actually engaging as meaningfully with those topics and it, it just like doesn't work the same way for me or something i don't like i i feel like it is like the using the aesthetics but not actually like the heart of the genre or the the form um yeah i think for me it's just like it's a hard question to answer because it's so general um i'm just gonna like fall back on having like studied like having focused on like literature in grad school um i just have to fall back on like all all of, all of these things are like up for debate and i think like the the argument that it is need, need that it like somehow needs to be or is defined by like a relation to colonialism, I think, is a like a sound argument that like many people have made very well. I also think like there's an argument to be made for a broader. Um, you know, there's there's people who like argue for like Kafka being, if not magical realism, then like a predecessor. Um, yeah, and I think like there are. I think there are sound arguments to that end as well, especially when you consider like some of the authors that are held up on the, on the first view were like directly engaged with this, the stuff that's pointed to by the second view. So, you know, it's, 
as with any like genre definition, it can be hard to demarcate rigidly like the boundaries. Uh, yeah. But I do think the line of inquiry that you're like setting forth is essential and like enrich and yeah. And I, I think in the ways that I am interested in like exploring the expansion of it is still often in ways where it like deals with being subjects of various oppressive systems in a way that is again, still like there are things that I see described as magical realists that is like purely this aesthetic thing that like, I don't like it, it, it doesn't feel right to me when it's like purely just like, Oh, this is an aesthetic way. Like I've seen people describe Harry Potter as magical realism. And you're like, I'm like, no, like fuck that idea. Like that's like taking it too far. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. But you can also talk about like, you know, some people are like, okay, well this is like a Hispanic like phenomenon and like, like a South American thing and defined like, if, if like if not definitionally like at least like originally you know by like the experience of like colonialism and like south america and blah, blah blah but then like the counter argument to that is like okay well if you're talking about like people resisting like hegemonic forms of like thought and experiences of reality and like discourses then you know you almost have to expand that you almost have to allow for like but what about like the oppression of like what about Kafka who's like a Jew and the oppression of like yeah. Jews and like what and, like, about I think like, related like Gunter Grass I think there's some like fraught stuff around him as a person and everything but I think mm-hmm. like if you think of like the the Danzig trilogy I think a lot of that is ex- expressing some sort of magical realism that is around like what were the oppressive systems of Nazi Germany and you know I, I think I've brought this up. Previously, like, it was revealed, I think, after his death that it was known that he, like, was in the Nazi army, but I think he was actually in the SS, it was revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but his work is so deeply invested in trying to, like, interrogate the complexities of personal and collective guilt that that is not surprising to me. And the fact that, like, he he did all of that work, I don't know if it, like, fully absolves him of his complicity but i think it is also like i know my grandfather who unwillingly was just like a regular soldier in the nazi army and did not want to be enlisted but you know american visa expired went back to germany and uh tried to do like i'm a conscientious objector i'm a pacifist and they said like we have a solution for you because you're saying that like, you know, people in America and you know, people in the UK, we're going to send you to Russia. But then a lot of his like adulthood was still trying to unpack and deal with the the guilt that he felt over even unwillingly being a part of this army. And like a thing that he said to me once is the only fiction about world war two that he ever read that actually felt real and true was Gunter Grass, which again is like, not a naturalistic realistic portrayal it is like more of this magical realist portrayal Mm -hmm. um but i think is specifically tied to like how is this so invested in these systems of oppression and of like the guilt and the the ways that you can be like oppressed by a system and then still become like complicit in it that i think is like tied up into 
how are we then portraying these oppressive systems so but yeah and i like i think there's been a lot of other spaces where magical realist works have, have sprung up where i think it makes sense because it is like dealing with other forms of oppression so in summary thoughts on magical realism we both support it yeah i i, <laughs> I enjoy it a lot um we it's yes we we support it yeah. Tok- tokusatsu no magical realism yes <laughs> magical realist tokusatsu maybe <laughs> um do, do we have anything else no i think uh i think i think that that's good for now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um you know if you if you played attack of the friday monsters and you're like i would like to experience another piece of media that is about a child and his father and fighting giant kaiju you're in luck we're doing neon genesis evangelion next so go check out intro to neon genesis evangelion um. it's uh yeah it's it's just gonna be a bag of laughs um um, yeah, it's it's um yeah check it out yeah so it, if you want to write into future question bucket episodes you can do that at ghostdiverspod at gmail.com we've been like doing a rapid pace of these it feels like connor and now we're not going to do one until like mid-july <laughs> because we did two short series and now we're we're doing evangelion but yeah well, people you you can write in yeah, if if we get enough questions, maybe we'll do like a. Maybe don't we'll give me to more editing, Connor. Maybe we'll be forced to do another question bucket. I don't know. It's, no, yeah. I'll just be forced <laughs> to be more selective of how much we read of people's questions. Well, um, yeah, we didn't even read all the parts of the questions where they were just giving us praise. Yeah, you know that's uh, how. Deep, again, deeply grateful for everyone who appreciates the podcast. I I feel like. At this point, I'm like unapologetic about our length, but I also know that I think seeing the length probably turns a lot of people off from trying the podcast. Um, but I feel like everyone who actually does listen enjoys it, except for the one person who gave us one star on iTunes. And whoever that is, fuck you. Go write us and review us on iTunes. I don't know what it does, but go combat. Do five stars only, please. Uh, no one stars. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, vote vote your conscience. You know, we just we like the feedback. Five stars unless it, only. Unless it's, <laughs> unless it's your cowardly one star review. With no if you're content. doing a if you're doing anything less than five stars, you need to actually write a review. The one star review did not write anything. Hmm. Yeah. How are we supposed to improve? Yeah, I know. We don't even know what they didn't like about it. Uh, anyway, you can go to exportaud.io or patreon.com slash exportaudio to support the network, Export Audio Network. Um, yes, yeah, I'm very happy to be on this podcast network, and I feel like we have a bunch of fans just from being on the network, which is cool. Oh, one other thing I wanted to like mention here, because we we do these non-anime things and i i realized that if like you don't follow our twitter account which is ghost divers pod at on twitter 
or you're not on the abnormal mapping discord which is like where there's a channel for export audio you like probably don't know what non-anime things are doing because we don't actually say it on the podcast until the episode and so you might be listening and being like how are people writing in about this stuff (laughs) um so if you want to know what we're doing like when it goes out check our twitter account that's the one that's probably the easiest to get to yeah and then you can follow me at foxmomnia uh currently my account is locked because i have a turf who's like stalking me and harassing me at my home but if you send a follow request i'll I'll probably let you follow me unless you're like really sus but (laughs) where can people follow you connor if they're listening to this podcast they're probably they're, they're probably cool yeah if they've gotten this far People can follow me at Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S, on Twitter. Um, you can also follow at Garf Read Aloud, which is my Twitter account where I read Garfield comics into a camera almost every day. Yeah, and then these episodes here where we're actually doing a question bucket, and I know it's going to go out in a week, are the ones where I'm actually going to start being like, hey, here's another show on the network you should check out um so i'm gonna here plug ars arcanum which is coming back soon um i know that they recorded the a new episode uh as of the time that we are recording this i don't think autumn has edited it edited it or nora whoever is editing it and uploaded it but who knows it might actually be up by the time this is up because they usually do a faster turnaround than we do but yeah go go check it out i've started listening through the like backlog it's a it's a good podcast anything else you want to say connor no i think uh unless you want to plug the t-shirt again yeah i i guess i can i mean if people are going to go listen to the intro to neon genesis evangelion they'll hear it there but uh yeah you can go to shop.grapevine.is and search for milf and find a shirt that says milf man i love bottoming and has a picture of a fish on it. And it's a joke that I made on my private Twitter. And friend of the podcast, Cyborg, thought it was uh, funny enough to turn it into a real t-shirt. And it's now sold by a newspaper in Iceland. So um, you can you can go and buy it and wear it. I consider it unofficial official merch for Ghost <laughs> So I never get tired of that story. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's bizarre to be half awake, like literally you're like rolling out of bed and you have this idea in your head of a shirt that says, I'd rather be bottoming because you're just like, I don't want to go to work. And so then you search, I would rather be bottoming on Google and there's like no good shirts for it. And so then you search, I'd rather be fishing being like, well, I could like Photoshop that and it would be funny. Um, and then you see a shirt that says "Milf Man, I Love Fishing," and then you just really get distracted because again, you're you're half asleep and like getting ready in the morning, and you just like think that your friend will find it funny, and so you edit it and put it up, and then a completely different friend finds it so funny that they make it a real shirt. So, um, <laughs> don't know don't know how that happened really, but it's great. Go buy it. Classic. Bye. (laughs) Bye, everyone. See you next time.
final clap we are finishing before midnight oh i i came very close to making a a dumb joke just now (laughs) i don't know if i wanted it to like definitely be in the episode i wanted to give you editorial discretion on it i was i was gonna joke like yeah and the, the great thing about this shirt that's especially convenient is that if you're like me when you type in um, in the search engine, it will just auto-complete to MILF immediately. So you only have to type one letter to actually get to the shirt once you're on the website. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, if I just yeah. start typing in shop in my like URL thing, I just get MILF dash RVK grapevine. <laughs> as like the first suggestion so yeah. yeah um yeah no i just typed an m and it doesn't it doesn't autocomplete to milf that was that would have been it a, a why <laughs> it was a why sorry um, um oh, even when i do like I, M- mil it it goes to a milk bread recipe that i have saved yeah. um there's one review for the MILF shirt on the Reykjavik Grapevine website. Um, if you if you go and look, uh, it is from me, Neve S, verified buyer. Recommends this product. Five stars. Title: This shirt is about me. Text. <laughs> <laughs> I I made a joke on my locked Twitter about this shirt, and then Cyborg turned it into a real shirt. Now everyone can know that I'm a MILF and love phlebotoming. Thank you, Cyborg and the Reykjavik Grapevine. Thank you for recognizing me and making this joke a reality. Um, I love and how then, it's just like a classic, like, bass, like, yeah. fishing picture. 
And then the Reykjavik grapevine responded to my review and said, ha ha ha. Now that's a full circle. If you've ever heard of one, enjoy the t-shirt. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. Classic. Yeah. I said your review is helpful. <laughs> Fantastic. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so about <laughs> Attack of the Friday Monsters, I feel bad we didn't get this on air because I feel like I was just like ripping on it. I do think I do think that one thing that's like nice about it is it tries to capture like I feel like there's a part of being in a small community, whether that's like a town or like a workplace or like even just like a friend group or whatever, where a there's a part where like people can be themselves a little bit more in a way of like, once everyone gets used to like who you are, it's like, there's a part where it's like, Oh, that's just Frank is one of the like episodes in attack of the Friday monsters where it's like, Oh yeah, that's just Frank. And there can sometimes be a feeling of like, there can sometimes be an aspect of that in like, and I think that's what they're trying to go for. Um, But the point they miss is like, Equally, or if not more so, like, small communities like that can be, like, oppressive as hell <laughs> and, like, yeah. not allow that. And, like, I, I appreciate what they're going for where it's like, oh, here's this community where, like, everyone is supporting everyone and, like, everyone is, like, working out their problems and realizing, you know, they're, like who they are or whatever through this like mutual support. But then it's just like, yeah, small towns are not, (laughs) are not always, or, you know, they're not really like this. Yeah. But whatever. I feel like you hit, you hit those points anyway. Yeah. Shall we do our time? That is clap. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just keeping you on the line here. Um, okay. 50. Okay. I didn't hear your clap at all. Do you want to do you want to try again? Uh, sure. I don't know if it matters, but um, five. Okay. Um, I'm stopping recording. Okay. We can start like the actual podcast proper shortly. I am going to do a quick Neve drink check. Um, <laughs> okay. So. I think you, you've seen our lime tree, which is like a little tiny tree. Like it's not mm-hmm. like a tree tree. It's just like, it's like literally in a little pot. It, it sits on the cage that we put over our router so that the cats won't chew on the antennas. <laughs> so it's like a small thing, but it, it had one lime on it that it actually started growing like early last year. And it was finally like, it like would give a little when I would squeeze it. And it was starting to get like a little brown spot on it too. And I was like, I feel like I just like need to pick it now because if it just turns brown, it's going to be bad. And it like could be good. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, as I said earlier, O8th MS team is a very gin and tonic like show to me. (laughs) So I Uh made a gin and tonic. I used the last of this uh, Himbrami, which is a like Icelandic gin that has Icelandic, like various Icelandic herbs and 
stuff in it. Um, it's like a very good but hard to find gin. And it's kind of, I think it's barrel aged because it's a little bit brown. Uh, but I did that with the gin and tonic. And then the lime was in fact ripe. So um, I put that in there and it, it was a small lime and I just did like a wedge of it. But it actually is really, really good lime flavor. I'm... Mm. It's a good lime. So I grew a good lime. Nice um, job. The skin is very thin on it, which is actually really nice for like a gin and tonic. Like you don't want a like really thick skin because you want the juice. So Yeah. Yeah, gin and tonic is my uh my favorite cocktail. Mm-hmm. When when I drink. This is this is a good one. Um Yeah, well maybe if um if I'm ever able to Come back to Chicago. Maybe we'll have gin and tonics. I'm actually going to do now recording Neve drink check and like tweet on my Twitter account. Uh, no, do not install. Um, this is great radio as I just tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Tweeting live on air. Yeah. This is a performance piece. We're going to do a podcast of you tweeting and then me not tweeting. (laughs) Now recording the question bucket and here's the Neve drink check. A gin and tonic made with Imbrimi beer. Or not beer, gin. Um, Okay. A bunch of this is going to get cut because it's just dead air. But setting tweet now. Um, also, I don't know if you noticed, but um, I turned off auto cap on my phone. Um, oh yeah, I did notice. I thought you were just mad at me. No. So <laughs> it kept like Apple iPhones. They always try to like auto cap anything that it think thinks could maybe possibly in any way be a brand mm. that's like within. Like, not just an Apple brand, but, like, if it's, like, in the App Store, they might try and capitalize it. Like, if you, like, type Mario, it will try and, like, do it in the style that they, like, want for the game that you have that's Mario or whatever. Because I have, like, the, like, Mario phone game. Um, And so every time that I typed the word just, like, there must be some app or something called just, and it would capitalize it. And it was, like, getting incredibly annoying because I say just a lot when I'm typing. Um, and then it was just like other words that it was just like constantly or like phrases that it was constantly capitalizing because it's just like, oh, this is a like brand name or something. And most of them, I'm like, I don't even recognize the brand, but it just got so annoying having to like delete that. I was just like, fuck it. Like all caps. No, like or auto caps. No, like caps are gone. <laughs> if I want caps, I'll do them myself. It's all or nothing. <laughs> yeah. So. All right, let's do a time.is clap. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm glad. Thanks for explaining that because I was greatly disturbed by it. I was like, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> um, I was actually worried for your health because I was like, oh, wow, she must be super sick if she's not even capitalizing letters anymore. <laughs> um, okay, clap at 43. Okay. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Emma has to cancel tomorrow because i was like very on the fence about like i'm i might need to i don't really want to but i'm glad it's working out that multiple of us maybe don't want to role play tomorrow okay i didn't even see that i mean i do want to role play it's just 
I saved a lot of my energy today for this. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it's hard when we podcast one day and then do tabletop the next day. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, it's even worse for you undoubtedly because you have to do all the prep for the tabletop stuff. Yeah. All right. Clap. Um, okay, twenty-four. All right. I feel like you're getting like really tight with the times, but it's nice. I'm enjoying it. Oh, um, thanks. Appreciate that. It's an okay. uh, interesting... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been complimented on that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you got a tight time, Connor. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right, let's start with this uh, Ava stuff, just so that, like... We do not miss it because I need this recorded. Um, okay. Okay, let's get into the actual episode. Now that we've been recording for a half hour. Well, it wouldn't be Ghost Divers if we didn't start until if we didn't start a half hour after we were planning to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least we like started recording on time. We just had to add stuff in because I didn't want to do this at the end of the five-hour recording session with brad (laughs) yeah so all right hello hello hey what's up not much i'm just eating some chakri mix here some what uh it's like an indian snack Mm. For a second, I thought you said you were eating some chalk. I was like, damn. <laughs> it's one way to get an edge for the for our podcast recording. Um, no, it's just like a, a mix of little crunchy Indian things. Sweet. So there's like nuts. It, it's called chakri mix. It's one of the main things in it is chakri, which is like a crunchy, I think it's chickpea flour thing. Mm. Um. Nice. It's um, like medi leaves and things. It's good. Coming through the airlock. Hello. Hello. Came through the airlock. Yeah, I did. Gosh, I'm so I'm so bad at talking about music. It's just it's a trip. I think it was uh, good. Okay. Um, I, hope, I hope that made any sense at all. Um. Did I ever yeah, tell I you? Was, I didn't want to be like super critical, but I I thought it was interesting that like especially as you started talking of like. I feel like what I find interesting about this album, what Connor finds interesting are like the opposite things. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think you're right about that. And that's kind of before I launched into like my incoherent rant. That's what I was trying to gesture at. But did I ever tell you that um, I, when we first started doing like, it might've even been, 
our first attempt to start Ghost Divers when we didn't actually, when I didn't know how to press record. Um, I might have been thinking about this like as early as that, but I really wish that we could make our theme song like a cover version of Ghost Rider by Suicide. I've always been like, that would be fucking perfect if we could just have a cover of Ghost Rider. But instead of Ghost Rider, we could somehow say like Ghost Divers. I'm pretty sure it was back during um, Ghost in the Shell, I think. There's a moment where I think you briefly mentioned this Mm -hmm. idea. Not the full like make it Ghost Divers, but you say like the first 30 seconds of Ghost Rider. And then I, I stuck in 30 seconds of Ghost Rider at that point, And it was like in a, a post ending section. Okay. Um, I must've, I must've missed that. Yeah. Um, um, and it's like, it's great because the first 30 seconds, if you're pulling it off of the self-titled is literally just like the guitar part at the beginning. And it's like, it stops right before vocals start. So yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Suicide wouldn't actually sue us for um, <laughs> for violating their their licensing because that's so against what they're all about. Yeah. Um, but they probably do, would. Do they like, have a record label that owns their stuff now and that would? <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely would. Yeah. <clears throat> Suicide would too. They were just like, fuck it. Fuck you, Ghost Divers. Um, shall we do my non-anime thing now? Um, yes, let's do it. Okay.